very warm welcome to the Brexit Briefing with me, Marcus Stead, exclusive to Talk Podcasts. Coming up in this edition, a developing story as this podcast is being recorded. It's looking more and more likely that Theresa May will be facing a leadership challenge in the not-too-distant future, as increasing numbers of Conservative backbench MPs express their anger over the Chequers' proposals. Also in this week's podcast, more information on the risks of a no-deal Brexit for the aviation industry, Formula One and even horse racing. And I'll be telling you why I think Boris Johnson is not fit to be Prime Minister. Do stay tuned. As I'm recording this early on Wednesday, some important developments are taking place with regards to the Prime Minister's future. On Tuesday evening, there was a meeting of the European Research Group, which is a pro-Brexit faction of the Conservative Party. The meeting was apparently chaired by Jacob Rees-Mogg, and there were around 50 MPs present. And for the 40 or 50 minutes or so that the meeting lasted, the only topic being discussed was how to go about getting rid of Theresa May. As the MPs left the meeting, two MPs, Andrew Bridgen and John Barron, were collared by ITV News. Here's what they had to say, starting with Bridgen. Was the leadership of the Conservative Party discussed? Um, I think it was, yes. Do you think the Prime Minister's safe in her job at the moment? Um, I've been told that uh, she will get a full uh, appraisal of the comments that were made over the dinner. What sort of comments were those? Give us any idea? I think that's, that's a matter for within the party and uh, within those four walls. So are we heading for a coup? Um, I think we'll just have to wait and see. I hope that the Prime Minister will take on board what she's heard and uh, check checkers and we can move to the Canada, Super Canada free trade deal that uh, would best serve our exit from the European Union. Have you been convinced about checkers though? Well, we were discussing leadership. Okay, did the dinner and wine help? Discussing With the support? Leadership issues. Which leadership is usually discussing? You guess. The extraordinary thing about this is the openness with which Conservative MPs are now discussing removing Theresa May. Just a little reminder of the logistics of how to go about removing a Conservative Prime Minister. There's something called the 1922 Committee, which is made up of backbench Conservative MPs. They require letters to go in from 48 backbench Conservative MPs to trigger a leadership contest. A number of those letters went in around mid-July, just before the summer recess, but they did not get close to 48. The timing of this sort of action is important, because if a vote of no confidence against Theresa May was triggered, and she then survived that vote, party rules state that there could not be another challenge to her leadership for the next 12 months. My understanding is that following the meeting that took place on Tuesday evening, they are now up to somewhere in the region of 35. Remember, 48 is the magic number. Here's the extraordinary thing. Normally, after a meeting like this, you'd expect those, if they were stopped by a reporter on the way out, to either ignore that reporter or to give an evasive answer. Andrew Bridgen and John Barron have not. They have made it pretty clear that if the Trekkers' plan is not ditched immediately, they will seek to remove Theresa May as Prime Minister. Things could move very quickly in the days ahead.
Two weeks ago on the Brexit briefing, I said that what we were facing was not so much of a no-deal Brexit as lots and lots of little side deals being done to ensure an orderly departure from the EU. Today we learn that Brexit Secretary Dominic Raab and the EU's Chief Negotiator Michel Barnier exchanged words after it was revealed that the British government had written to the 27 other member states asking for side negotiations on transport in the event of a no-deal Brexit. The letters had asked that the member states prepare to engage with the British government in side deals on aviation and haulage to allow key trade flows to continue in the event of the UK and the EU failing to come to an agreement on leaving the Union by the 29th of March 2019. The Transport Secretary Chris Grayling had ordered the letters to be sent despite being told less than two weeks ago by the European Commission's most senior trade official Violetta Bulk that without a deal this autumn there would be no other agreements made to protect the UK economy. Mr Barnier is said to have reiterated that message to Mr Raab, telling the Cabinet Minister, if there is no deal, there is no trust. And this links into comments made by Christopher Booker in last week's Sunday Telegraph. Booker warned of the consequences of dropping out of the European Common Aviation Area, which provides the legal framework for members of the EU and the European Economic Area to fly freely in each other's airspace, subject to their complete conformity with EU aviation rules. On becoming a so-called third country, the UK could not apply to rejoin it, to allow continued air traffic between ourselves and the EU without lengthy negotiations, and even then only if we have established a close economic cooperation with the EU. This would have lots of consequences that haven't really been talked about much. For example, it would have a severe impact on Formula One motor racing, with seven of its nine teams based in Britain, driving cars largely designed and manufactured in Britain by an industry turning over £9 billion per year. New border controls would make it difficult to maintain the incredibly tight timing involved in moving thousands of tonnes of equipment between Britain and the seven other EU countries that stage Grand Prix, and that means that many teams may have to relocate to the continent. Not something to be taken lightly. Another sport that would be affected by this in a similar way is horse racing, because the tripartite agreement between Britain, Ireland and France that allows racehorses to move freely between the countries would lapse. Again, crippling border controls would make it impossible for Irish horses to run at, say, Cheltenham or the Grand National, because it would take too long to get them home. And the Grand National is staged at Aintree, and presumably Aintree Racecourse's chairman Rose Patterson is aware of this because her husband is a certain Owen Patterson, a pro-Brexit Conservative MP. I wonder how Mr Patterson really feels about a no-deal Brexit. Christopher Booker writes, As with many other examples of the disastrous consequences the former Bank of England Governor Lord King warned of last week, all this has only arisen because our ministers have never shown any awareness of what damage we could suffer if we leave without a proper agreement, which no amount of last-minute side deals could hope to fully remedy. Moving on now, and you'd never guess, would you, by watching the mainstream media news, that 
Economists are pretty much split as to whether Brexit will benefit the UK economy or harm it. And I can think of three economists from the top of my head who are saying that Brexit can be a very good thing for this country. One of them is Sir Patrick Minford, another is Gerard Lyons, and another is an economics journalist, Ed Mitchell, who has worked for ITN, the BBC and CNBC, among many other organisations. And one of those people, Sir Patrick Minford, um, he, he was invited by an organisation called the Economists for Free Trade, formerly known as Economists for Brexit, to a talk held in Parliament on Tuesday at the invitation of Jacob Rees-Mogg. Professor Minford of Cardiff University has a pretty impressive track record of economic predictions, more so than the Bank of England and the Treasury in any case. Among those present at the meeting were former Tory leader Ian Duncan-Smith, former Brexit Secretary David Davis, and Steve Baker, the former Brexit Minister, as well as a certain Boris Johnson. More on him later. Professor Minford told the room that a no-deal Brexit would bring substantial gains and there was no need to worry about Project Fear. Jacob Rees-Mogg has said that a no-deal Brexit will boost the UK economy by £1.1 trillion over 15 years. Here's what he had to say on Tuesday. The Treasury said we'd lose 800,000 jobs and go into recession purely on a vote to leave. The Treasury was wrong. It's been consistently wrong. Do you remember we were going to have a punishment budget? That never happened. And economists for free trade have a consistent record of being accurate, so that's why I back them, uh, rather than the phony forecasts of the Treasury. I'm using forecasts that have been drawn together by some of the best economists in the country with the most successful track record of forecasting for a political purpose. That's absolutely right. What I'm saying is look at experience and don't believe the scare stories, because some of the scare stories are just not true. The idea that food prices will go up. No, they won't, because we will be in charge of our tariffs, and the government is not going to punish the electorate by putting up food prices. No. But basically what we're trying to do is to answer the question set by the European Union rather than give the answer that we would choose to give. So the European Union says the Northern Irish question undermines the integrity of the single market. And what we're trying to show is that on precedent from other parts of the European Union, it won't do that. And that there can be rules, there can be processes put in place that will ensure that the Northern Ireland Republic of Ireland border is as good as, if not better than, any other European border. Thanks to the Telegraph Online for that clip. And one quick observation I'd make about the Northern Ireland border issue is yes, it is something that needs to be resolved, and the government hasn't exactly been proactive in sorting this aspect of the Brexit process out. But surely when you consider in London you've got the congestion charge, which knows the number plate of every car coming in and out of central London, surely it can't be that difficult to monitor the vehicles going past the Northern Ireland Republic of Ireland border. Just a thought there. On now to Boris Johnson, who appears to be manoeuvring into position to challenge for the Tory leadership and would therefore become Prime Minister. Towards the end of last week, it was announced that Mr Johnson had separated from his wife of 25 years, Marina Wheeler, who incidentally is the daughter of the former Newsnight journalist Charles Wheeler. And then a few days later, he used a crass analogy in the Mail on Sunday when he wrote that the Prime Minister's Chequers proposals had wrapped a suicide vest around the UK Constitution and handed the detonator to Michel Barnier. It's worth remembering that this came just a few weeks after Mr Johnson's letterbox comments to describe Muslim women who wear the burqa. 
But this has been the story of Boris Johnson's entire political career, and indeed of his career as a journalist before that. So let's begin this analysis by not referring to him as Boris. I've lost count of the number of times usually serious and balanced political journalists have used this term of affection to describe him in a way they would with no other politician. BBC London News went through a phase of referring to him as Mayor Boris and there is no way they would have referred to the then Prime Minister David Cameron as Prime Minister David, for example. Another good reason for not calling him Boris is that is not his name. He is known by his family and by his immediate circle of friends as Al because his name's actually Alexander. Boris may well have begun as a journalistic pseudonym, but it went on to form a useful part of his caricature image. He does have certain abilities as a writer. He helped turn the Spectator magazine around as its editor when it had gone through a difficult period, though he did require quite a lot of guidance from board members to keep him focused, including from Norman Tebbit, who was a board member at the Spectator for some years, I gather. And Johnson has a tendency to overstretch his eccentric posh boy image. You know, we get these rambling speeches every year from him at the Conservative Party conference. But nevertheless, he is undoubtedly well-read. He can be amusing. He's intelligent. And he has shown personal kindness to people I know through my work as a journalist. Though, on the other hand, he has got a pretty nasty streak to him, as his former newspaper boss, Max Hastings, will testify. And we need to look beyond the buffoonery and ask serious questions about whether this is a man fit to lead the country. Voting for an eccentric, amusing act is all very well and good in a tacky TV talent show contest, but can we really imagine him as Prime Minister? I think there are three key things we need, to, we need to ask of any political leader. What are your political principles? What kind of moral compass do you have? And do you have the set of skills necessary to lead a government effectively? In answer to the first question, nobody can say for certain what Johnson's political principles are. As Mayor of London, he had limited powers where Political ideology often took a back seat to one's ability to deal with pragmatic matters such as transport and housing. For example, Ken Livingston, Johnson's predecessor as Mayor of London, is not someone I have a huge amount in common with politically, but he understood that large numbers of people either cannot drive, choose not to drive, or would willingly cut back on their car usage if cheap, reliable and integrated public transport were available. So he made this a priority during his time as Mayor of London. And he did a lot of things in terms of transport that I find difficult to argue with, in terms in particular of affordable tube fares, for instance. The same Ken Livingston, speaking a few years ago on his LBC radio show, said of Boris Johnson that the only thing he believes in is in being there. And I think Livingston hit the nail on the head. The thing that motivates many of today's leading politicians is not principle or a burning desire to change things for the better, but a desire to belong to the political classes. There are perhaps a few clues in Sonia Purnell's controversial biography, Just Boris. 
What becomes clear from that is that Johnson's main motivation is power itself. But scratch the surface, and there is not much in the way of substance or conviction behind it. Certainly nothing that would single him out as especially Eurosceptic or even Conservative. And it's worth remembering that before the 2016 referendum, Johnson submitted two articles to the Daily Mail, one supporting Remain, the other supporting Leave, and he only instructed which article to be published and which one to be spiked, just before he declared his hand for Leave and became a supporter of the Vote Leave campaign. Moving on to point two, and that's Johnson's moral compass. And if we look at that, there are often serious causes for concern. Like his father, Stanley, he who appeared on I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here last year, Boris Johnson is a serial philanderer. And this aspect of his life has not received anything like as much media attention as it deserves. Johnson is known to have sired at least three children outside marriage, whilst his affair with fellow journalist Petronella Wyatt resulted in one abortion and a miscarriage. But as with everything, Johnson has managed to shrug this off. His philandering and the misery it has caused, it may be seen as acceptable and a non-issue in the trendier parts of London, the sort of social circles he mixes in, but go into the conservative heartlands of Shire England and in marginal seats, and all this sits somewhat more uncomfortably with many people, if indeed they know about it, which... Frankly, because it hasn't received the attention that it deserves, not as many people know about as they probably should know about, and they may be shocked if they knew what he was really like in his private life. Now, I don't buy into the notion that a politician's private life is nobody else's business. This idea that you can be duplicitous and amoral in private, but somehow you can then be trusted not to display any of those traits in your work, has always seemed very questionable to me. I've seen many times in my working life how people who behave in a shady way in their personal lives have much the same attitude in the workplace. If you have an attitude to life of me first and what can I get away with, then that'll show in both your personal and your professional life. And Johnson's professional moral compass fares little better. Because within a year of becoming a trainee reporter at the Times, he was sacked for making up a quote from his godfather, the historian Colin Lucas. In 1995, when Johnson was assistant editor of the Daily Telegraph, a recording of a telephone conversation from four years earlier emerged when he plotted with his old Etonian friend Darius Guppy to have the then News of the World reporter Stuart Collier beaten up. Guppy was later jailed for an attempted jewel fraud. Let's listen to a bit of that conversation. Boris, have you got this number? Gerard, look, there is a guy at the moment going through your brilliant his file at home. Fantastic. But I am telling you something, Boris. This guy has got my blood up, all right? And there is nothing which I won't do to get my revenge. It's simple as that. Uh, how badly are you going to hurt this guy? Not badly at all. I, I really, I want to know. Cause it, I'm, okay, let me explain to you. I, if, if this guy is serious, I'll be fucking curious. I guarantee you, he will not be serious. How badly hurt will he be? He will not have a broken limb or broken arm. He will not, uh, he will not be put into intensive care or anything like that. 
black eyes and a, and a, and a, and a cracked rib. Nothing which you didn't suffer in rugby, okay? But you get scared, and that's what I want him to do. I want him to get scared, I want him to have no idea who's behind it. Okay, I get fucking, I get You will not, bro, I swear to you, if you knew... Yeah, 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 I'm not going to say I'm like, I'm going to say 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 I'm going by 2004, Johnson had spent more than a decade in senior editorial roles and three years as a Conservative MP. But, as editor of The Spectator, he still saw fit to publish a stupid and highly offensive article about the people of Liverpool, making insulting references to the Hillsborough disaster and the death of Kenneth Bigley in Iraq. As Mayor of London, Johnson was given advance notice of the arrest of Conservative MP Damien Green and put pressure on Acting Commissioner Paul Stevenson not to proceed with the arrest. Johnson was Chair of the Metropolitan Police Authority, meaning he wasn't permitted to be involved in operational matters. Although Johnson was found not guilty on all charges following an in-house inquiry, it's hard to reach any conclusion other than he was informed of Green's arrest in his capacity as Chair of the Metropolitan Police Authority, but had reacted in his role as a Conservative politician. Although Johnson makes no secret of his well-off background, he seems to have an arrogant, even flippant approach to money. There are many examples of this, too many to go into right now. As Mayor, Johnson made several large claims on his expenses for short taxi journeys because he kept the driver waiting for lengthy periods of time with the meter running. One three-mile journey from City Hall to the Elephant and Castle cost £99.50. In his private life, he can obviously afford such luxuries, but to have such a careless attitude towards public money during a time of austerity is inexcusable. Johnson does not appear to have learnt from past mistakes relating to his lack of transparency and honesty. The third and final question about whether he has the range of skills necessary to lead a government effectively again leaves us with serious doubts. He has a haphazard, live-in-the-moment leadership style. It's also far from clear whether leading and managing human beings is one of his strengths. We need to ask ourselves what image of Britain we wish to project to the world. Would Prime Minister Johnson be a suitable figure to negotiate on Britain's behalf in the White House or in Beijing? It's all very well being a figure of fun in Britain, but the wider world may struggle to get his act and take him seriously when called for, which could, in fact it has caused embarrassment and offence on times as Foreign Secretary, and him being Prime Minister. Can you imagine him going around the world behaving in that way yet again? How would Johnson come across in, say, the aftermath of a major terrorist attack? Could he deliver an effective address to the House of Commons and on a special TV broadcast to announce that British armed forces have been sent into battle? How would he come across comforting the bereaved relatives of fallen armed service personnel? Could he appear convincing, solemn and sincere when laying a wreath at the cenotaph? In other words, can he be statesmanlike when the occasion demands? Alexander Boris Johnson is not someone who is fit to be Prime Minister. And that brings us to the end of another Brexit briefing. 
Don't forget to spread the word about the podcast to your friends. We'll continue this run of podcasts each week throughout the party conference season. In the meantime, feel free to send me your thoughts. I'm at Marcus Stead on Twitter, or you can email me at marcusstead at hotmail.co.uk. Have a good week, and thank you very much for listening.